0: Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thousands of Haitians are being deported by the Biden administration, and also video emerges of U.S. Border Patrol agents chasing down Haitians on horseback and whipping them. One can be heard referring to Haiti as a S.H., you know, the rest country. What's going on? Our guest is Nana Jumphy, Executive Director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration and occasional guest host on Sojourner Truth. And the Indigenous Environmental Network has called for postponement of the upcoming COP26, the UN Governmental Conference on the Environment scheduled to be held in November in Glasgow, Scotland. This, in the midst of the growing environmental catastrophe, we find out what's behind that call from Alberto Saldamando, the Indigenous Environmental Networks Council on Climate Change and Indigenous and Human Rights. And Barney Bush, a Shawnee Cayuga poet, activist, and educator has died. We pay tribute to him as we hear some of his words from his keynote speech to the Forest Convergence Gathering held in Shawnee National Forest in the fall of 2019 in Southern Illinois.
1: I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. President Biden is speaking at the United Nations General Assembly in New York at this hour. is expected to address climate change, the coronavirus pandemic, and the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, among other issues. Because of the pandemic, it's the first time in two years that world leaders have gathered at the U.N. There are plenty of pressing issues to discuss still raging COVID-19 pandemic and a relentlessly warming planet are top of mind for many world leaders. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres told leaders there's no time to waste in addressing
2: climate change. With present national climate commitments, emissions will go up by 16 percent by 2030. That would condemn us to a hellscape of temperature rises of at least 2.7 degrees above pre-industrial levels. A catastrophe.
1: Rising U.S.-China tensions, Afghanistan's unsettled future under its new Taliban rulers, and ongoing conflicts in Yemen, Syria, and Ethiopia's embattled Tigray region are all high on the U.N.'s agenda. Congressional Democrats say they will push ahead with a vote to fund the government and suspend the debt limit. Many Republicans oppose raising the debt ceiling, arguing it only encourages more excessive spending. Democrats plan to tie the debt limit to their spending plan to fund the government. Congress must fund the government in the next 10 days or risk a federal shutdown. It needs to raise the nation's borrowing limit or the U.S. will default on its debt. Democrats point out that the raising of the debt ceiling is for servicing its loan debt, not new spending. This is all happening as Democratic lawmakers are trying to move President Biden's massive $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill through Congress. Canadians voted Monday in parliamentary elections to keep Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in his job, but not with the added seats he was hoping for when he called early elections to gain a clear majority in Parliament. Feature Story News' is Nick Harper reports from Toronto. The Liberal Party retains power and Justin Trudeau retains his job. Projections showing the Liberals will win the most seats in the Canadian election. Justin Trudeau called the snap election hoping to turn his minority government into a majority. But with the votes continuing to be counted, the country may end up in the same situation it was before the snap election, a minority government for the Liberals, with Trudeau still needing to court rivals to get his legislation passed. In that report from Nick Harper, Johnson & Johnson released data showing that a second dose of its one-shot coronavirus vaccine provides a strong immune response months after people receive a first dose. The pharmaceutical giant said in a statement today that it ran two early studies in people previously given its vaccine and found that a second dose produced an increased antibody response in adults from ages 18 to 55. The study's results haven't yet been peer-reviewed. The J&J trials showed an increased immune response in doses given two months after the initial jab and an even greater protection six months after the first dose. The company is in talks with regulators, including the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the European Medicines Agency, and others regarding using booster doses of its vaccine. The European Court of Human Rights has backed the conclusion of a British inquiry that Russia was responsible for the killing of former Russian intelligence operative Alexander Litvinenko, who died in 2006 after drinking tea laced with a radioactive material. Litvinenko defected to the UK from Russia in 2000. Free Speech Radio News' Benji Heyer reports.
3: Russia was responsible for the killing of Alexander Litvinenko, according to the European Court of Human Rights. Mr Litvinenko, a former Russian spy who became a British citizen, died of polonium poisoning in 2006 in London. A UK public inquiry conducted in 2016 concluded the killing was probably approved by Russian President Vladimir Putin, although Russia has always denied involvement in his murder. Meanwhile, a third Russian has been accused by police of involvement in the 2018 Novichok poisoning in the English town of Salisbury, which left three people critically ill and one dead. Police believe the suspects in the case belonged to a Russian military intelligence team.
1: That's Benji Heyer, and I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio.
0: And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Along the U.S.-Mexico border, at least 12,000 migrants have been waiting in makeshift camps under the Del Rio Bridge in Texas, desperately trying to enter the United States. Among them are young men, children, pregnant women, and babies. Fleeing environmental devastation imposed poverty and state violence in their home countries. Those hailing from Haiti and Africa in particular have faced racism as they've traveled across Latin and Central America, being regularly attacked by state and non-state actors. Conditions under the bridge are uninhabitable, dark, wet, dirty, cramped, and hot. Many of the migrants sleep in in tents or on the dirt, surrounded by growing piles of garbage waiting in hopes of being processed by the U.S. Border Patrol. Ten babies have been delivered since Thursday by women transported from under the bridge, this according to CNN. Now, the Biden administration has plans to deport uh, thousands of Haitians um, who right now are camped out under that bridge, and thus far, he the his administration they've rounded up at least 320 uh, Haitian migrants, and they are planning on doing uh, three plane loads per day returning uh, people. To Haiti. And of course, uh, this, as you well know, Haiti, in the midst of a crisis following the recent earthquake there, the assassination of Jovenel Moïse, and the political instability that has plagued uh, that uh, nation for some time, as well as um, violence there. Now, video has also emerged of Border Patrol agents chasing down Haitian migrants on horseback, drawing comparisons to the era of slavery and Jim Crow segregation, not only chasing them on horseback, but actually whipping uh, some of them and coming very, very close to women and children. Border Patrol moved 3,300 migrants out from under the bridge on Sunday, This, according to NBC News. Uh, Let us go to a clip now on the crisis, on what is happening. Uh, And this is a clip from
1: CBS. The Department of Homeland Security is ramping up its efforts to deport migrants from South Texas. More than 12,000 people are currently camped beneath a bridge near Del Rio, Texas. Most of them are from Haiti. Manuel Bohorquez reports.
3: Tonight, a sea of humanity and desperation along the Texas-Mexico border that has overwhelmed the U.S. Border Patrol. A number of agents on horseback can be seen trying to keep migrants from crossing into the country while threatening them with what appears to be horses' reins or ropes, including families like this one holding a baby when the agents get dangerously close. As they try to pass, the agent said this to them. A massive show of force by Texas troopers creating a barricade along the border to stop the thousands of mainly Haitian migrants from arriving in Del Rio, Texas. The Department of Homeland Security is executing what could be one of the largest mass deportations in decades to remove the remaining of the nearly 15,000 migrants at the camp. Today, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas warned those coming illegally will be returned.
4: That this is not the way to come to the United States. Trying to enter the United States illegally is not worth the tragedy, the money, or the effort.
3: Some who qualify for asylum have been allowed in, like Raul de who fled Haiti's crime and poverty three years ago and trekked here from Chile. He says he left because there's no security in Haiti and is looking for a better life. But as the administration tries to crack down on illegal crossings, Mexican officials tell CBS News migrants are looking for other routes to enter the country as an alternative to being deported back to Haiti. Alex Rosier is a 36-year-old Haitian migrant. I don't want to be deported. If I'm deported now, I'll die in Haiti. Why? Because there's no security in Haiti. 600 additional federal agents have been sent to this section of the border as the U.S. increases the number of deportation flights to Haiti. There is some concern that migrants may attempt more dangerous crossings. One recently drowned along a wider section of the Rio Grande. Elaine.
1: Manuel Bajorquez, thank you. For more, I want to bring in CBS News immigration reporter Camilo Montoya-Galvez. Camilo, welcome. So how did these migrants end up at this makeshift camp in South
4: Texas? Good evening, Elaine. For context, the number of Haitian migrants encountered at the U.S.-Mexico border continued to make up a relatively small population of the overall encounters of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border most migrants being apprehended by border patrol officials continue to hail predominantly from Central America. The number of increasing for the past few months, in August, uh, U.S. border officials stopped Haitian migrants more than 7,000 times. That was a 37% increase from July. And authorities in Panama have also recorded a significant increase in the number of Haitian migrants crossing the Darien Gap. This is the roadless jungle that connects Panama and Colombia. Many Haitian migrants take an, uh, undertake rather a treacherous journey through this remote region to reach Central America. And this is uh, because many of them have lived in South American countries like Brazil for years, now have decided to trek north uh, in search uh, of jobs, of safety and of reuniting with family here in communities like Miami and New York with large populations of Haitians. Uh, We know that some of these families uh, include uh, South American born children of Haitian uh, uh, parents, which complicates uh, the logistical and legal uh, challenges that the Department of Homeland Security is currently facing uh, trying to process uh, this very large number of people.
0: All righty, there you go. And what I'd like to do now is to welcome Nana Jumphy, attorney, consultant, educator, activist, executive director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration, known as Baji, and president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers. Nana Jumphy, welcome back. Thank you so very Thank much. Thank you so you very know, well. Glad to be here, which it wasn't under these circumstances. Right. And and Nana, thank you also for pitching in on sometimes guest hosting for us here on Sojourner Truth. But uh, Nana, just in terms of the situation on the border, uh, your thoughts, uh, because it, it seems as though Haitians are being singled out. Uh, for special treatment. We know that there are all kinds of problems at the border, humanitarian crisis across the board. But what we have seen happening with Haitians, even news mainstream news reporters are saying this is unprecedented. You see uh, Border Patrol agents on horseback uh, chasing after uh, Haitians, uh, whipping them, and one could be heard referring uh, to Haiti as a s-hole country. Uh, Nana Jumphy.
5: Absolutely. You know, there's parts of this that are unprecedented. There's parts of this that are not unprecedented. Certainly what we're seeing in the concentration of the targeting is unprecedented. It's in a level, I mean, they're talking about having three to eight flights per day that are able to, you know, that they want to use to be able to deport the Haitian and other black asylum seekers that are right in this particular area of Del Rio. They didn't have that kind of sauce for the withdrawal from Afghanistan, okay? It wasn't that directed and orderly as they seemed to be able to direct and order the forcible removal of Haitian asylum seekers, black asylum seekers from the border in this particular place. Uh, the images that we see are horrific, Um, But, you know, we also have to remember that we're talking about people who have already been through horrific conditions. This is what makes it even more terrible. It's terrible on its face. But we're talking about people that have escaped situations, have left situations of devastation, have made this treacherous thousands of miles journey, crossing through borders in which they're being detained in every prison on the way, in every country, you know, every detention prison in every country on their way between Central America or a country in South America as they approach the border of northern, the northern border of Mexico. They have been, you know, attacked by police. They've been attacked by civilians. The anti-blackness that they've received has been extreme Only, you know, running to the United States, thinking that that's going to be a place of refuge, only to be shown so directly how actually anti-black, how racist this government actually is. And my heart bleeds, not just for the physical suffering, but just the mental anguish and emotional anguish that our people are going through at the border, having gone through all that, their hopes, their dreams, all that they thought could happen what they endured to do that, only to now have themselves, you know, handcuffed, put on planes and forcibly deported without any kind of process, without anyone even hearing what their circumstances is right back into Haiti and other black countries.
0: Right, and uh, Nana Jumpy. I mean, the Biden administration has said it will prioritize all single adult Haitians and some Haitian uh, families for uh, deportation. I mean, they're claiming that uh, families and, and women with children uh, won't be part of this. But nevertheless, I mean, first of all, it remains to be seen if that is the case, you have um, the, you know, the administration claiming that they are so upset that they are going to do an investigation into Haitians being chased by Border Patrol agents. Uh, So, of course, you know, look into it. But the reality is, it is his administration's policy that's causing this in the first place. And not only that, um, we all know the situation on the ground in Haiti, the recent earthquake uh, that happened in the southern uh, part of the country, um, the political instability with um, government after government of U.S. prop, Uh, propped-up people uh, that uh, the Haitian grassroots have been protesting against, actually. So the U.S. being part of the problem in relation to Haiti, not now, but also for decades. And in the midst of all of this, they're sending people back. The, the level of violence is such that people are feeling very, very insecure, uh, food insecurity, etc. So your thoughts on all of this, because there's been a history in a way that led up to this moment. And part of the reason that myself and other people are so outraged at what is happening right now. Nana Jumphy.
5: Well, it goes to the question, what do Haitians have to do to be seen at, you know, to be asylum seekers? What do they have to do to be seen as people that need relief? Uh, you know, it, you think about the studies that have said that people think that black people don't feel as much pain, right, when we go to the doctor. It's not just at the doctor. It is society that doesn't recognize the pain of black people. It is, and when you talk about the Haitians, there is a particular unforgivable blackness that has been assigned to Haitians that makes it such that it's very, you know, it's been traditionally um, a a target of U.S. immigration policy. So the first times that you had people just being turned back around was the Haitians when they were coming by sea. And when you talk about Guantanamo Bay, the first people to be held there were the Haitians. Um, So this is, you know, back as part of immigration policy, so whether you're talking about the immigration policy here or what you've laid out about the ways in which the United States has impacted, influenced, um, pushed itself into in imperialistic way, um, Haiti's policy, Haiti's operations, we understand that this is a loop, a, a, a loop of terror, right? that is happening in Haiti, and then you come to try to get to the United States, you get terrorized some more, and you get dumped back into Haiti, and then you have more terror there, all of this being fed by the United States' domestic and foreign policy. And so, you know, when they talk about investigating CBP, it's like Bonnie investigating Clyde. You, this is your people. What are you talking about you're going to investigate? They're doing, as you pointed out, what you have asked them to do. And so we need to make a demand that the deportations and expulsions stop. We're demanding that there be humanitarian parole for Haitian and all black asylum seekers at the border. We're not asking just for Haiti, even though, of course, Haiti's important, but we don't want them to wave bye-bye to the Cameroonians and Ethiopians and others that are on the other side of the border. No, we want all black asylum seekers to be led into this country to file their claims. And then, of course, if they want to do an investigation of the cops,
0: we're fine with that. But we need
5: relief right now.
0: Right. And and Nana Jumfi, I mean, it was— uh, you know, announced uh, just today, I think, that the Biden administration is going to increase the cap of the number of refugees allowed in the United States um, to 125,000 in 2022. What, help our listeners to understand the difference um, in definition, at least as the U.S. sees it, between a migrant and a refugee. Nana Jumpy.
5: So firstly, just in terms of that number, the number was, was raised this year, and 6,500 people who are you know, defined as refugees have actually been left into this country, 6,500. So we don't care about lifting the cap. They can lift the cap to a million. If they don't let people in, then it doesn't matter. So you know, we've got to be clear not to be fooled about that in terms of this numbers game they play. So when we're talking about refugees and asylum seekers, these are people who are fleeing violence. It could be based upon their race or their ethnicity. It could be based upon their political position, because they're LGBTQ. Um, you know, their gender identity. It could be based upon violence that you know particular types of violence that are coming out of their country that either is being done by the government or that the government cannot control. It could be as a result of things like the earthquake, for example, hurricanes, etc. So that is different than people who are, say, you know, they're purposely coming here to go to work, so they're getting a work visa, um, or they're coming here to go to school, or they're coming here to visit. That's a different scenario. Or, or they got the diversity visa, and they're coming here, you know, getting their green card and coming here to live. That's a situation that is, that is not based upon humanitarian relief. But when you look at refugees and asylum seekers, this is a humanitarian basis. It is U.S. law that if you make it to the border of the United States, that you can claim asylum in the U.S. And it's international law that you can, if you get to a country, you can claim asylum in any country of your choice. And so you know, what the administration is doing right now is flouting U.S. law, flouting international law. you know, the basic human rights of asylum that black asylum seekers, including Haitian asylum seekers, are entitled to. When they say that people are coming to the border illegally, they are not. It is legal to come to the border without paperwork and say, you know, without a visa and say, hey, I'm claiming asylum. That is actually the legal process. So again, it's this combination of anti-blackness, racism, and cowardice that we cannot bear and that we've got to push back again.
0: Yeah, and and Nana, make your case Uh, to our listeners. You early talked about um, black migrants should be allowed into uh, the U.S., and we know indigenous people uh, who are now considered south of the border. I mean, there's this saying, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Are you then saying that it should only, because I don't think that was your point, only be black uh, migrants who should be allowed in to uh, claim and get asylum into the United States, Nana Jumphy? No, we want everyone to get asylum. We feel that people should be that migrating
5: is a human right that everyone that you know should be able to access and should be freely able to access. That when you deny people the right to migrate, you're actually denying their humanity. And so, certainly, we're not saying, oh, just let, you know, if you let the black people in and don't let other people in. But I will tell you this, Margaret Faji did a first ever CBC trip to Tijuana in November of 2019 with Representatives Karen Bass, Yvette Clark, and Barbara Lee, and then Representative Juan Vargas from the uh, Congressional Hispanic Congress joined them. We went and they spoke with 50 black asylum seekers at the border. When they came back, they said that because of the the virulent anti-blackness being experienced by black asylum seekers, because of the transphobic and homophobic violence experienced by LGBTQ asylum seekers, because of the language access issue that black asylum seekers have to deal with, that those two groups of people, that black asylum seekers, LGBTQ asylum seekers, should be granted immediate humanitarian parole. They said that. That was back in 2019 in November, before the pandemic and all of the additional uh, hardship that has been caused by that. And so it's not to say that no one should be let in, but right now, people are getting humanitarian parole and who's not getting humanitarian parole is black asylum seekers. So it needs to be clear That while everyone is suffering at the border, that there's particular ways that black people are suffering at the border without recourse, don't even have embassies in these countries, right? That requires that we pay special attention and that, yes, there is a special protection that's provided to them.
0: Yeah, and Nana Jumpy, I mean, you know, you make a, a good and strong case there in terms of what you found in 2019, but uh, my personal experience in Central and Latin America is that anti-black racism is very, very thick. I mean, in a place like Guatemala, uh, uh, an insult is to call somebody Indio because the darker skinned indigenous people also very discriminated there, or uh, Negro for, uh, for for black people, and, and some 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 parts of Latin America you feel maybe you're back in Mississippi in the 1930s or or some such. And that is a conversation that we need to have in this country uh, between uh, black and brown communities because there is a a, a reality that needs to be faced and some work that needs to be done. But having said that, um, title this Title 42 expulsion is being used uh, by the U.S. government um, for people who have recently been in a country where, um, like, let's say, COVID or another disease, communicable disease, was present. But it just seems to me as though. Uh, This is just an excuse to crack down generally on on Haitians in particular, but on migrants generally coming from south of the border. Nana Jumphy, Absolutely. Title
5: 42 was roundly and soundly uh, criticized as completely racist when it was instituted by Donald Trump. And suddenly now that it's been reinstituted by the Biden administration, it's not racist anymore. Now it makes good sense. It's ridiculous. And particularly, Margaret, when you look at who is coming into this country, it is those black and brown and Asian folks that this country doesn't want to be bothered with. And so it's Central Americans, yes, but it's the indigenous folks who are coming. That's who they don't want to see, right? It's not like the white people from Peru or something that they would be okay with. These are the folks that, that again have been driven off the land because of policies of the United States and the West and now find themselves having to flee for their lives. They, you know, so these are populations they don't want to have in. Southeast Asians, another population that the United States does not want to be bothered with. And those are folks that they're also keeping out. And so when we look at, you know, a comparison, we understand the United States knows how to be compassionate and open its doors and, you know, to people that have helped them, but also people that haven't. For example, those folks from Afghanistan that didn't help the United States. The United States and the U.S.ians are still trying to figure out how do we help those folks. But again, what does it take for Haitians and other black asylum seekers, indigenous asylum seekers, Southeast Asian asylum seekers, what does it take for us to be seen as human beings having a need for humanitarian relief?
0: Right, and, you know, I'm an immigrant, right, and I often have to say that to folks because they look at you, I'm of African descent, and they're assuming, well, you're not, right, because there's this stereotype yeah. of what an immigrant, you know, is supposed to is supposed to look like. I mean, well. in places like New York, black immigrants make up almost 30% of the total black uh, population in the state. Uh, so that's just the reality of it. But Nana Jemphi, we're going to continue to follow this story. We know that you're up to your eyeballs um, pushing back against this, that there is a press conference being planned in Los Angeles today at noon. I think perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit about that. But also for people who want to do something about this, who want to support the, uh, the efforts of Baji, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, what, the, what should they do? Nana Jemphi. So, if you want
5: to support these efforts, you know we have a toolkit that we put together that is going to share with you the background, the summary, what the call to action is with respect to stopping all these deportations, granting humanitarian parole, et cetera. You can go to baji.org, b-a-j-i.org, and find that toolkit there. You can also follow us on Twitter at baji Tweet and on Instagram at instabaji, and that's spelled B-A-J-I, so that you can keep up with what we're doing because we're updating all the time and giving people the opportunity to see how they can help. Um, You know, it's really important that people join in that way. Um, And in terms of the populations, yes, we have to to understand that black immigrants are black people. 20% of the black people in Los Angeles are black immigrants. It's, you know, we're a population that has always been a part of the liberation movement of this country. We continue to be a part of the black liberation movement of this country and um, the liberation for all people on the planet.
0: Right. Well, on that note, Nana Jumpy we'll definitely uh, have you uh, back here as we continue to follow just this horrific uh, situation. And and Nana, I can't help but say for people who, who say, well, it's, you know, people who come to the United States for economic reasons have no right to do so. Well, excuse me, because a lot of the, the work and uh, minerals and, and whatnot that happens in the global south um, uh, really help to maintain the lifestyle in the global north. So we have paid the price. We have earned the right to be here, to be in Europe, or to be anywhere. Be darn well pleased. So just want (laughs) to, you know, give a a mini rant on that, Nana. But... (laughs) Thank you for your work, and thank you so much uh, for joining us. And uh, and I think there is a a press conference today at noon uh, in Los Angeles. So for our Los Angeles uh, listeners, we'll post some information on our social media on that. Thank you, Nana. Thank you so very
5: much. Thank you for all the work you do. Appreciate you, Margaret.
0: Okay, and you. We are going to take our station break, and when we uh, return, remembering uh, Barney uh, Bush, Shawnee Cayuga, uh, activist, environmentalist, educator who has passed away, and also the Indigenous Environmental Network joins us to talk a little bit about why they are calling for a postponement of the upcoming UN Conference COP26 on the Environment to take place in Glasgow, Scotland. Scotland in November. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Morning song by War Raven, and that is in part in honor of uh, Shawnee Elder Barney Bush, who has passed away. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at www.sotruradio.org, where we'll give you. Video- uh, websites and information. You can uh, get involved, our community calendar, and much more. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at Social Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud uh, listeners in Seattle, Washington. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners north of the border in Canada. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Now, Barney Bush was a Shawnee Cayuga poet, activist, educator, environmentalist. He was born in 1946 in Illinois and earned a Master's of Fine Arts in English from the University of Idaho. He was known for his poetic works, including Left for Dead, Prisoners of the American Dream, and Songs from This Earth on Turtle's Back. As an educator, Barney Bush was instrumental in establishing Native American study programs across the nation, and the Cheyenne Indian School in Oklahoma. He helped establish the Institute of the Southern Plains, a Cheyenne Indian School located in Oklahoma and helped many universities develop Native American studies programs. He taught at the Institute of American Indian and Alaska Native Culture and served as the chair of the Council of the Vineyard Indian Settlement. And sadly, Barney Bush has passed away, both myself Romero Funes from the Sojourner Truth team were invited by um, the Global Justice Ecology Project to the uh, Climate uh, Forest Convergence and held in Shawnee National Forest in October of 2019. There we met Barney Bush and heard him speak and we in, in remembrance of him we are going to bring you now some of the message that he gave to that convergence.
6: issues here tonight. One of them is the uh, Saline Valley that is being stripped. I would like to talk about the word sociopath. I would like to talk about our uh, homelands. When I was a kid growing up here down along the Saline River, Saline River Bottoms, my chums, cousins, generally all the folks around there I was related to. And um, we, had, we, we were little Tarzans growing up down there. We had grapevines, and we had all kinds of things that uh, uh, made us. And we had horses, and we had, um, uh, we had a pretty good time hanging out in the hills and swinging on grapevines and, and uh, going hunting. My father and his brothers were all hunters and fishers, and that's how we got by that's how uh, we fed ourselves and we had gardens we had large gardens and it seems odd to me now as a guy that's a little older than 39 i think about how the uh, uh gardens played such an important part in our lives and and with my grandparents and great-grandparents and and we all had certain crops that we raised uh, that we swapped off on when it came to drying or canning or or whatever it was that, in order to preserve the food. But one of the things that we kids got used to were the hills and the rivers and the creeks. And at that time, you could swim in the rivers, in the waters, and you could see in them. You know, you could see under the water. And uh, it wasn't long. I was about 12, 13. The strip mines moved into our part of the world over there on the Saline River. And all those familiar... uh, Hills, all those familiar uh, places where we had played and rode our horses and all of that, within three years were gone forever. Leveled forever. Everything that was a part of my kinship in growing up visually in the land was gone forever. And to this day, when I see those coal trucks going past my house down by Harrod, even when I see the big trucks taking the last of the big grandfathers, the timber from the forest, big trees, that hurts. That hurts in a way that probably, I hate to say this, but, but probably only other natives or environmentalists can understand how that hurts because I think that everyone here is attached somehow or another to the sanctity of the earth. There is something holy about it, and you know it. You feel it. It's in your it's in your eyes. It's in your heart, and it's in your voice. And to just say simply that I feel this way because I'm native, is not true. I feel this way because I am a human being, who was raised by the forest, who was raised by the, the lightning and the thunder and the rainwater and the wind. People say that maybe sounds odd to say that you were raised that way or in proper English reared that way. No, it's not odd at all. Those were my ancestors. Those are my relatives now as we speak. They were my influences when I was a kid. Yes, we were forced into going to, when my grandfather became a Christian when I was about six years old, we had the church introduced into our lives. And that was a strange thing because it introduced a new kind of fear into our lives. A new kind of, uh, of uh, logic. A new kind of uh, uh, attachment to the colonial culture. And in my family, we were never that close to the colonial culture, although we, we protected ourselves. We protected each other as much as we could. But we still had to go to the schools. The state required it. and. Uh, I can say now that there was always one or two kids that were never sent to schools. There was one or two kids that always had some of the culture that, they st- that stayed with them at home. There was always that element of knowing that something is wrong with this whole culture of being, you know, from the, from the Columbus uh, fantasy of, of the 14, late 1400s to the present. There's something wrong. And what's wrong is that about five years ago, I learned the word sociopath for the first time. What a sociopath truly is. And do you know that most sociopaths, as pathologists have discovered, are people who are born without a conscience? Now wrap your heads around this. Born without a conscience. Don't forget that. Whether it's the politics, I can no longer just be angry with the man or the woman in Washington who does the kinds of things that they do, who who, uh, murders people randomly or destroys the earth, those people are acting without conscience. People say, well, they're greedy. They're acting without conscience. They have no conscience. How do you deal with someone who doesn't have a conscience? How do you deal with that factor of human being that does not have a conscience? There was this woman who wrote... uh, a book called The Sociopath Next Door, Uh, Dr. Martha Stout, I believe is her name. And she estimated back then that about one in, I think, nine or one in 19 people is a sociopath. It's much more than that. She hasn't seen it from the Native American perspective. The sociopaths have been here, have come in mass since, uh, since the boatload of, of, uh, Spanish Catholics and Spanish Jews came across with Columbus in 1492 and the great murder. As Padre de las Casas wrote in his journals, that he estimated that between the first uh, nine months of the occupation, that approximately three to eight million people lost their lives because of that, because of murder and the lack of conscience. How do you slaughter people like that? How do you murder them? How do you throw them overboard to the sharks? people in this country in colonial countries in particular have been throwing the indigenous people to the sharks for a long time have been doing that that sort of thing to our homelands throwing our homeland to the sharks to the sharks of industry to the sharks of uh, chainsaws and and new machines that can take a forest down in just no time at all and yes people kill indigenous people there's a there's a thing in the colonial society That has this murder penchant for women don't ask me exactly what it is because it's without conscience when it happens does not the person that does that you can you can be angry with them all you want but you're being angry with this desk you're being angry with the pole in the ceiling you're being angry with chairs you're being angry with vessels basically that have no conscience and when you get home tonight, those of you who have your computers with you, look it up. You'll find different uh, different stories of this um, of this world without conscience. You'll find different studies that are done on these things. Primarily, it's without conscience.
0: All righty. And um, Barney Bush, uh, Shawnee elder that is part of his speech from the 2019 North American Forest and Climate Convergence. The Convergence by the way was sponsored by the um, Global Justice Ecology Project and the Indigenous Environmental Network. Our next guest actually is from the Indigenous Environmental Network and we know very well the role that Um, uh, Christianity and uh, Catholicism in particular uh, played with the papal bulls and more with the oppression and mass slaughter of indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. We are just going to pause now as in our tradition on Sojourner Truth to play the morning song as we remember uh, Barney Bush. It is uh, sung in uh, Dida, um, out of the Ivory Coast um, from the album Na Afriki. Let's hear that now. <laughs>
3: Thank yeah. oh
0: that song uh, from one indigenous uh, culture from the continent of Africa in honor of a man from the indigenous peoples here, the Shawnee, here in the United States. We're now going to uh, wrap our show up um, by welcoming our next guest, the indigenous environmental network indigenous climate action and native movement have collectively joined a call for the postponement of cop 26 which is the 26 un nations uh climate change conference that will be happening uh next month in november in glasgow scotland i'd like to welcome Alberto Saldamando, who is the Indigenous Environmental Networks Council on Climate Change and Indigenous and Human Rights. He is an internationally acknowledged expert on human and indigenous rights, representing indigenous peoples, organizations, and communities from various countries from many parts of the world before the UN and other indigenous uh, international human rights organizations. Um, he is a uh, has indigenous roots himself. Um, Alberto, welcome.
2: Uh, Thank you very much.
0: Okay, so Alberto, uh, tell us the reason behind this call to postpone uh, COP26 and what the position of the Indigenous Environmental Network is on that, and how will you deal with the you know, the very real possibility that your call for postponement actually won't happen, Alberto?
2: Well, I mean, the the, uh, host government, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, which is kind of like an acting war, uh, decided that they would, uh, they have their own COVID kind of crisis. And so they've got uh, uh, concerns about people coming into uh, the United Kingdom when Scotland... Uh, Scotland has its own uh, COVID rules, and so what they they initially started saying was that they would ensure that whoever wanted to attend the COP, this Convention of Parties in Glasgow, uh, whether they be delegates or NGOs, government or non-government, they would uh, be uh, receive a, uh, the the vaccine, uh, and at 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 uh, at UK's expense. And, uh, and not have to uh, worry about entering the country. But as time went on and their crisis, uh, the second wave of the vaccine, uh, of, uh, of the, vaccine, uh, of the uh, COVID came around, <clears throat> they, uh, they, they decided to redline countries, which are mostly the, the, the South, the global South, Africa, Asia, Latin America, <clears throat> and say that if, they wanted, if people wanted to come in from those countries, they would have to quarantine for two weeks. And so the expense – and, and and well, there was no uh, vaccine available to people as the U.K. promised because the northern countries, the colonial countries, the colonialist countries, uh, Europe, the United States, Japan, kept it for themselves, and they vaccinated their own people. And so now there's like Africa has less than 2% vaccinated people. Uh, Asia has a very low rate of vaccination. And in Latin America, particularly with regard to indigenous peoples, there hasn't been a, a di- distribution of the vaccine. Uh, I mean, at all. Uh, so there are entire co- indigenous communities in the South that have not even smelled it, but have yet been uh, given the disease by uh, tourism, which is, tends to be a money maker. Uh, uh for uh, indigenous peoples uh not only in the south but all over but in, in any event none of these promises panned out and so the south uh is going to be totally unrepresented um we in the north uh in in Latin America, in, uh, in, in turtle island have have been fortunate in, in having vaccines available to us most of us are vaccinated anybody that's going to cop is going to be vaccinated we are not redlined. And so the situation in the United States and Europe is that. So in any event, uh, we're concerned that the South will not be represented. These are voices that need to be heard, particularly since they are most affected by climate change. I think uh, this, that speech by, uh, by Elder Bush is true. It's absolutely true worldwide. It's, not, it's, it's uh, the privatized colonialist who is creating the problem, and is now offering solutions that really make things worse. So I, we're, we want to be there. We're going anyway. If there's no, if there's no postponement, because we don't think that. We don't want to be silenced, and we want to be able to ensure that at least the voices of, of our indigenous brothers and sisters in the south, are heard. That we're there to raise our voice. We're there to demonstrate. We're going to be having actions outside the COP, and in many respects, the actions outside the COP will be more important than the actions inside the COP. I think there's a realization that it's critical that the, uh, the so-called international community act to, in order to reduce emissions, in order to avoid the, the, catas- the truly catastrophic offense on humanity if they fail to act in any positive way. So we're going to be there, and it it looks like it won't be postponed. The U.K. is really acting as though there's no problem. Um, They've reduced their their rules a a bit, relaxed them a bit. But still, I think it's by this time, by the time the cop rolls around, the people in the South won't be – there won't be vaccinations. It takes a while for the visa process to work. So we see a COP, it's really pretty much a Northern COP, a Northern Conference of Parties, but but we hope to be there and we hope to raise our voices precisely for those reasons that L.G. Bush talked about. They are offering response solutions right. so that they can continue doing what they're doing.
0: So um, Alberto, will the Indigenous Environmental Network, other in indigenous climate action, native movement, will you actually have a voice at the official government conference i mean will you be able to present at this cop uh 26 and I, I suppose from i hear what you're saying that you will go uh, but you are putting up this protest in solidarity with um, your sisters and brothers in the global south and the continent of Africa, uh, south of the border in the U.S., et cetera, who have very little access uh, to vaccines. But will you have um, a, a, a voice in the official government conference, and or, or will you only have a voice in the activities outside of the conference? Alberto.
2: Yeah, well, we do have, we do hope to have a voice inside. We have allies. We have uh, certain states that are willing to uh, to follow up on our positions. Of, primarily, from my perspective, we want them to respect the rights of indigenous people. We want them to be able to, if whatever climate action they take, whether it be REDS or whether it be whatever they do in order to climate action, they have to respect the rights of indigenous peoples. And uh, I, uh, one thing is uh, that the, 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 the Paris Agreement recognized that tra- indigenous people's traditional knowledge can be extremely useful in, uh, in combating climate change, both in mitigation and adaptation, but primarily adaptation. And so they have created this uh, uh, platform, indigenous peoples and local communities platform that's been being implemented by a working group. And this working group is presenting, uh, they agreed when they uh, uh, formed this uh, working group to implement the the platform to respect the rights of indigenous peoples. And so we intend to hold them to that promise. They've already committed, the Conference of Parties in the last decision they made two years ago agreed to respect indigenous rights. So we want to hold them to the promise we want to hold their feet to the fire with regard to indigenous rights, and we have allies that are willing to do that for us within the states. It is, after all, a state-driven process, so we can't vote, but we can generate support from different states. We have a very strong uh, support from the small island states that recognize that they're respecting the rights, of, respecting human rights generally, and the rights of indigenous people in particular. Are, is critically important to effective, uh, uh, effectively combating climate change. We also have Costa Rica and a group of 31 states that is kind of expanding, that recognizes the importance of human rights in the recognition of, uh, of uh, with, with, with the regard to the implementation of, uh, of the Paris Agreement, which is what this conference is about. So we're not entirely right. uh, helpless However, it is a state-driven process, and they do things by consensus, and, uh, and it may be that the, uh, uh, Russia and China, uh, states that are not exactly enamored of human rights, are going to, uh, to be uh, difficult. Uh, but I don't think it's impossible, because I think the climate events are becoming so severe that they must know that humanity is at risk. It's not just indigenous people that are at risk, it's the whole of humanity. And humanity certainly is part, Russia and China are certainly a part of humanity. So we're hoping that they see some sense in it. Otherwise, uh, nothing is going to happen. They're going to be negotiating uh, markets, market solutions with a lot of conditions placed on those markets. And it's very possible if they not agree on market yeah. solutions, which is the, the key, in which case there would be no, no real progress made, at least internally, inside the COP with regard to climate change. And that's why we're putting a lot of our efforts outside.
0: Right, and, and of course, indigenous peoples here in the Americas, but in other parts of the world have been at the, front of um, this fight um, for the rights of mother earth and for the environment of uh- Thank you so much for joining us. You know, as we go into uh, COP26, we get closer to COP26, we would like to have the Indigenous Environmental Network back. And also on our website, we do carry a link to your website so that people who who are planning on going to COP and who want to find out what they can do to support your efforts will find out. So, Alberto Saldamando, I'm afraid we are out of time, but thank you so very much for joining
2: us. Well, thank you. It's an important message. Thanks. Thanks again.
0: We're out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes and today's audio engineer. I'd also like to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, so trueradio.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at So True Radio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.